Now to this evening program. <coughs> Jeremy Della was born in London and studied art and art history at the Courthouse Institute of Art, University of London, and at the University of Essex. Winner of 2004 Turner Prize, Della is known for elaborate artworks that tap into social issues and involve the participation of numerous people. In the prize citation, the judges commented on a generosity of spirit across a succession of projects which engage with social and cultural context and celebrate creativity of individuals. The Battle of O'Grieve from 2001, a reenactment of the 1984 conflict between police and striking miners, was included in 2008 Hejon exhibition, The Cinema Effect. Other prominent Dallas exhibitions include Folk Archive with Alan Kane at Centre Pompidou in Paris, It Is What It Is, at the New Museum in New York with Creative Time. That presentation was actually also shown here in Washington, D.C. So, several years ago, so that was exciting. For Washington, we have Jeremy Della here, really actually for the, as a person for the second time, presenting for the third time. And Joy in People is a retrospective held at London's Haywood Gallery. Della was appointed a trustee of Tate Gallery in 2007 and was in that position for four years. As an art history undergraduate at the Coldheart Institute of Art, Della met Andy Warhol and was invited to visit New York. It was during the two weeks he spent at the factory that Della realized he wanted to be an artist himself. An influential cultural theorist, Stuart Hall, argued the traditional artistic categories do not quite capture Della. He is, among other things, a sort of ethnographer, an assembler of things, a stager of events, people and artifacts, a remaker of already constituted materials, an animator of living environments, as much a film or theater director as fine artist. The Della will be speaking about his ideas that really concern him, people he has met, and the many paths his work has taken. Before we invite Jeremy Della on the stage, let me first welcome Paul Smith, director of the British Council, in the U.S. and cultural counselor at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. since 2012. He has been involved with the British Council around the world since 1983. Paul? Thank you very much, uh, Milena. And wonderful, incidentally, to hear you quoting the great Stuart Hall, who sadly died only last month. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to say a few words tonight. That's a great privilege. I won't repeat uh, Milena's uh, thoughtful words describing the fascinating aspects of, of uh, Jeremy's career and the international impact of his work, but I do want to say just how delighted we are to see Jeremy's work and aspects of English magic here at the Hirshhorn. 
uh, and Jeremy himself here in DC tonight. That's wonderful. I'd like to applaud the Hirshhorn for its ever inventive and innovative program around the contemporary arts, and particularly in this rather splendid direction series, which I think we're part of. The British Council, which for those of you who may not know, is the, uh, is the UK's official agency for cultural and educational and uh, so social relations overseas, has long had the great pleasure and privilege of managing the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. And I know in 2013, at the last Biennale, that my curatorial colleagues at the Council in London um, especially enjoyed the pleasure of presenting, helping to present Jeremy's English Magic at Venice 2013. English Magic is currently touring in the United Kingdom, but we are delighted that uh, Milena and team, you uh, have been able to uh, present the film which Jeremy has produced as a key part of the Venice exhibition. English Magic was critically acclaimed and proved to be a visitor favourite uh, at the Venice Biennale. And that, of course, amongst the very best of contemporary international visual artists who, who present at Venice every, every other year. Um, at the British Council in the USA, we are particularly excited by Jeremy Deller's practice and preferred way of working, because we aim to particularly present in the US work from the UK in the visual arts and in the performing arts, which involves an intelligent, creative approach to public inquiry and the exploration of some of the more important social and political issues of our times. We remember, as Milena just mentioned, one of the last significant projects that Jeremy did in the United States. This was with those wonderful partners at Creative Time and involved a road trip with a car which had been bombed in Iraq in 2007. The tour across America uh, began in 2009 and it began here in DC on the National Mall and it sparked debate and conversation around a range of very contemporary and controversial issues. I might add that I didn't see that exhibition myself because at that time I was working in Afghanistan where we suffered our own car bombs. The British Council was blown up by two 500 kg car bombs and attacked by seven suicide bombers. So I have to say I feel a particular affinity with Jeremy's exhibition, which was called It Is What It Is. We find such work and work like English magic inspiring and essential, particularly when the visual arts engages as Jeremy's work does with a range of people beyond the expected. People such as soldiers, veterans, journalists and scholars. Jeremy draws all such into his work and opens the spaces between visuality, mobility, and most importantly, the realities of people's often fractured experiences. So it's a great pleasure to have Jeremy here tonight and I introduce him to you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Could I have the lighting down a little bit, if that's possible? If it is at all. That's nice. And a little bit down on me as well. 
After all those very, very kind words, I start off a talk with an image of a toilet. I'm very sorry about this, but um, this is in a way where, and being British, of course, you know, have to get the toilet jokes in quickly, and, which I will do. Um, so really, I, be, I studied art history, where you've heard my biography now. I didn't know what to do when I left university. I had no idea what I was going to do, really. And I sort of stumbled into becoming an artist for a variety of reasons. I lived with my parents till I was 31. So throughout those times, it was quite tense because I didn't really know what I was up to, really. So especially uh, one year, they went on holiday for two weeks, and I did an exhibition in the house in their absence. And this, and this is a photograph from that exhibition. Uh, it is a picture of a... Well, it's clearly what this picture of. But on the walls, you might be able to see these A4 sheets of paper. What they contain is the graffiti from the men's toilets of the British Library which uh, as graffiti goes it's very intellectual and academic but also but still full of sexual frustration and uh, competitiveness and lewdness so but incredibly funny graffiti what you found was people started arguments and posing questions and setting puzzles with each other because you're in this competitive academic environment in a, in a library obviously so it was very very funny so I made it into a book but when my parents were on holiday I put it in the toilet my mother saw this picture some years Years later and was outraged that I hadn't put the toilet seat down on the photograph. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is a this was my bedroom at the time, and these are some photo uh, paintings I did about the life of Keith Moon, who's the drummer with the Who. I'm sure a lot of you know about him, and it was really a series of paintings, the first and last paintings I ever made, really, almost uh, Stations of the Cross because I've been very, I was very interested in music, always have been, and in a way, it was, I always saw the world through music, through the eyes of music. I interpreted the world through music, and um, this is a very obvious example of that. About three years, two years ago, I had a retrospective, and I recreated my bedroom, kind of a very tidy version of it, I have to say, in the gallery, and it was the first thing you saw when you went into the Hayward Gallery. You walked into what you thought was going to be a huge, cavernous space, but it was actually a sort of little, well, fairly small suburban bedroom, and it was a way of containing a lot of early work, sort of juvenilia almost, which would look quite pathetic on a gallery wall, but if you put it within this sort of context, it was okay. It kind of worked because there's so many, there's hundreds and hundreds of things. You, you could pull out the, the drawers and the cupboards and there's work in it. So it was meant to be a, like a Wunderkammer almost, where you could see all these things I'd made virtually in my bedroom for about a period of five or six years as I was struggling to work out what it was I was actually trying to do with my life, basically. That all changed in 1996 when I had an idea, uh, a, a strange idea for a music project. Again, music was something that, like I said, is a big deal for me. And it was for an idea for a brass band, which is a very British, very traditional form of music making, to play electronic music or for it to be transposed and for the band to play this music, which is called Acid House. And as soon as I had the idea, this diagram came up in my mind. And in a way, it justified the idea because, of course, any music can be played by any kind of musicians. You can transfer music. It's, that's, that's, not, that's easily done, but what it was was really was a history of Britain through two music genres. So the brass band movement is associated with trade unions, with heavy industry, um, with strikes, and then with deindustrialization. So actually, there's a big... They became very political, especially in the 80s when industry in Britain was basically under attack from the government. At, 
acid house music actually comes from the US, comes from Chicago and Detroit mainly, but it was adopted wholesale by British people in the 1980s, just after the miners' strike in, the, in this moment when Margaret Thatcher was in power. And it became an incredibly hedonistic music movement. Massive uh, assemblages of people, thousands of people would assemble to, to dance to the music. They would also take drugs. So it became very quickly demonized by the uh, government and by the press and uh, became criminalized, basically, this sort of behavior, as did picketing and secretary picketing um, in certain circumstances with, uh, in um, trade disputes. So they both had this connection. They became music of disobedience and of unrest and, and media hysteria. And uh, so I made this diagram to connect them. They're also sort of folk music, I think, uh, comparisons as well, vernacular music comparisons. But also one was a purely digital form of music and the other was uh, an industrial form of music. And if you think about what trombones and trumpets look like, they look like piping from uh, factories, basically. They even look like the places where the people worked who played the music. So it was a series of concerts. This is just an example of the media history at the time about Acid House. This is a photograph of the party, and it's an early use of Photoshop by the Sun. This is this great newspaper we have in Britain. And uh, you can see the eyes of everyone has been sort of whited out to make it look like they're zombies. And that was, that was in 1986, so that was an early um, example of that. So I'd approached a band. And this is a moment of liberation for me, really, because before then I'd been making things. I'd been making objects and doing printing and doing stuff. And from, uh, from this moment onwards, I basically work with people. And what you'll see today is the result of that, really, a, a result of a, a single phone call to the manager of the band. I was very nervous when I rang him up with this idea. I said, would, you like, would your band be interested in playing this dance music? I, said, I actually called it electronic, contemporary electronic music. I didn't call it dance music or use any of these terms. And he said, yes, we'll do it once and we'll see how it goes. And since then, they play it all, all over the world. It's been performed at the opening of Tate Modern. So it's, it's got this life. It's got this amazing life. And what I like about it is the bands are very traditional, but they're full of young people, as you can see. There's a lot of very young people in the band. Now the people are so, some of them are so young, they weren't even alive when that music was being made. So it's almost heritage in itself, that kind of acid house music. The problem with brass bands is that they play to quite elderly audiences. When the first time I saw this band play, there's a woman in the front row, literally, um, doing her knitting as they were playing. They weren't playing the music I asked them to play, because when they do that, it becomes a different thing. They play at music festivals, and they play at sort of very unusual venues for a brass band. And they have a whale of a, a, whale of a time, basically, because it's, they're treated like rock stars, which is part of the thing. I think what I like doing is going on little adventures with people, just to see where you end up and what, how far you can push an idea. And there'll be other things you'll see tonight that are like that. But this was a really great lesson for me, which was basically people are up for doing stuff who aren't necessarily interested in art or the art world in London, but people are interested in novel ideas and working with an artist. As long as you, you work with people in a certain way, they'll be up, they're, they're interested. The problem often happens when you go to the gallery or for the museum or the institution. They get, or they have in the past, they get nervous about working with the public or the public, the idea of the public making work in their galleries and so on. So it taught me everything really, that phone call and working with the band. And it was so enjoyable. It, it, it just made me wonder why would I make objects when I can just do things and get away with it basically. The biggest thing I did after that 
was much more serious and I didn't think it was even possible. It was a, I wanted to reenact a battle between the police and striking miners from uh, the miners' strike in 1984. And it was a battle that was shown on TV. It was a, had a huge influence on me as a teenager. And it involved 15,000 people. And I approached an art organization, Art Angel, to see if they'd be willing to make this thing happen. Going to the original place with 15,000 people working with people who were actually there at the time, so former miners and former policemen and so on, and make this public performance. Of course, we couldn't do it with 15,000 people. We couldn't, we couldn't afford that, but also the, the area where the original battle had happened was, um, didn't exist. It had been sort of paved over, effectively. Um, but the miners' strike itself was a huge moment in British history. It was a moment, I mean, not, not, in a way, not so much unlike what it was like to be in, in, uh, in the US during the Iraq war, the early stages of the Iraq war, where the, you either had to be for it or against it, or that's how it felt, that's how the government portrayed this argument. And with the miners' strike, it was like that, but the war was happening in your own country. So it was a, almost like a civil war situation happening in, in, in Britain, where whole towns and villages were fighting the police. You know, the police were effectively occupying towns and villages because the mines were in the middle of the towns and villages. That's how they were built during the Industrial Revolution. So here you have a, just a very common photograph of women fighting the police or trying to block the police, or that coach, which probably has a, a single striking miner going to work. Um, so it mobilized the whole community, um, the whole country, basically, and whole parts of the country and whole cultures were, were mobilized for or against this strike. So that was a, like a major moment for a young person to live through that, which is why I wanted to reenact it. So there's another image. Again, this is the idea of occupation of, of, of towns and villages. So to do that, you need to approach people who, a, who would be willing to do it, but also to work out how, how you can actually do it. And um, in the end, we settled for a 1,000 people to do it which is still a, a large body of men, and it was mainly men that took part in this because that's what it was like at the time. And I was really interested in making this battle part of the canon of British history, where we have all these, you know, we love our history in Britain. If you go, if you visit Britain and turn on the TV and look at an evening's TV, you'd think the Second World War was still on. <laughs> because we are obsessed with the Second World War, absolutely obsessed with it, and there's always something about the Second World War going on. And so I thought, well, what I, the people I should really be working with, and I think these photographs from America actually are reenactment societies. I mean, you have them in the US. Uh, I couldn't tell you what this is from. It looks, I'm not even gonna say what period this is from or what, what war, but it's obviously an old one. But, um, <laughs> In Britain, we have, we have so many reenactment societies, and the biggest reenactment society in Britain is the Civil War Society. The second biggest reenactment society is the American Civil War Society. So civil wars with reenactors are like a really big deal. But we have that, you know, everything from Roman and pre-Roman to Second World War, basically. We haven't gone beyond the Second World War. But what they see themselves as is sort of continuing some sort of dialogue with history or being part of history and they call it living history which is which is you know it's an interesting concept but the problem is it really is if you go to a reenactment they can tell you exactly about the gun they have and the bullets that went into it and the badges and the medals and the costume they it's not so much about the cultural social and political situations at the time why these wars were happening and why these battles were happening and so on so I wanted these reenactors to be part of a 
contemporary reenactment of a hugely political moment. And so for them, it meant, this is an image from the reenactment, they could actually come up against real living history in the, in the shape of these miners, men who were part of a campaign, veterans of a campaign, which they'd never be able to do with anyone pre-1940 now, obviously, or 1935. So it was an opportunity as, as anything for the culture of reenactors and reenactment to come up against hard political facts and realities of a time of 80s Britain. So this kind of clash of cultures was quite interesting and we made a film about it and the film shows the, the, the great concern the reenactors had, even though they outnumbered the former miners who were going back to this place to reenact for themselves probably one of the worst days of their lives. They were very concerned about the miners and really thought they would start another revolution or some of them would because they were so militant still. So that was interesting, there's this tension. But really for me, this was like having a, a public inquiry, uh, an open public inquiry, but done through an artwork and done through a live artwork as well because there was an audience watching this. But also in Britain, and I don't know if it's the case in America, if, you, if there's some terrible crime has been committed, like a child has been abducted or some terrible murder and the police have got nowhere, they will reenact the crime for the public and film it and show it on TV. And I thought, well, what I'm really doing, I'm reenacting a crime scene. And obviously a crime against these people, what happened to them that day, but also against the culture and effectively, in a sense, a country. And so that's what I was trying to do. What I wasn't trying to do, which people mistake a lot of artists' interventions in these sorts of things, as being something that's very cathartic and about the healing process and people moving on from stuff. I wasn't interested in that at all. If anything, I wanted to make people angrier and more wound up after it. Um, for me, it was like digging up a body and doing an autopsy, uh, a post-mortem basically, on a body that's been, that had been buried and no one had been interested in looking at again. So um, we did that and it, it, it was fine. Unfortunately I don't have time to show you the film but it was shown here a few years ago so you may have seen it. But really I never thought I'd work on that scale and I was very happy that I did. Um, but since then, I've done nothing on that scale, but I might be doing something in the future that big. But um, it gives you confidence, obviously, when you, when you get to do something, achieve something like that, and no one gets hurt, no one dies during the filming, because we made a film, but it was shot live, so it wasn't interrupted. This image is related to what you've just seen, weirdly enough. Uh, I'll let you look at it for like 10 seconds before I tell you what it is. It looks like some Renaissance masterpiece in a way, in the way it's uh, the, the, uh, arranged. And, the, and I studied um, Baroque painting, so I should know in a way. Uh, but um, this actually is a paint photograph, for me, that actually sums up the post-war experience in Britain. It's an image, really, even though the guy who had, when it was taken, didn't, probably didn't realize of a country trying to work out what to do with itself, a country that was soon going to be post-industrial going to become a, a country that's really just known for its culture, effectively. And that's how it, we make our money in Britain, or some of us do, is through our, on our wits, effectively, as cultural people and exporting TV and the, the entertainment economy is huge in Britain. So it's, 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 it's a photograph about this, this transition. But what it really is about, it's about the man on the right is uh, a wrestler called Adrian Street, and he left home at 16, having worked in that mine with that person on the left, who's his father, who he hated, and in 1973, when he'd won the middleweight title, the newspapers wanted to make a, 
a big uh, feature on him. And they said, where do you want to be photographed? And he said, well, I actually want to go back to the mine to show all the people in the mine and my father what I've made for myself. So it's a prodigal son sort of situation, really. But it's a revenge photograph because he hated everything about the mine, mining, the people behind him, his father. And it was really, in a sense, he wanted to show them the person he'd made himself, how he'd reinvented himself. But also, it's, I see it as something even more profound in a way. It's really about him showing the future of Britain to these people. It's like he's come off a spaceship almost, or has come from the future and deposited himself there to show them what he wants to do. So Adrian is a fascinating character, and I only, I only got to know him because of this. And I was just amazed by him, really. He lives in America now. He lives in Florida, and he still wrestles. You, he, he claims that he introduced spandex to wrestling in America, <laughs> which I know might not sound like a big deal, but it probably is quite a big deal, actually. He had, an, he had, he had this persona of this sort of transsexual, cross-dressing, transgender, transvestite, whatever, over-the-top character. He's not gay in the slightest, but he, very, he realized very quickly that he could make money and get a name for himself by being outrageous. And that's why he had this persona. Um, he did all the costumes for the film The Wrestler. I don't know if you know that. He has this cottage industry where he makes costumes. And he claims that he, when he was wrestling in Alabama, live on cable TV, um, one of the other things he did was kiss men who was fighting and put lipstick and makeup on them when they were unconscious. So he had this act and he kissed a black wrestler and caused a riot. And he says he thinks it's the first interracial uh, uh, male-to-male kiss ever on, on American television, which may be true, I don't know. So it's kind of groundbreaking, but sort of by accident in a way, because he just found this persona and he worked it. What's great about Adrian is that he has a huge ego and he is uh, incredibly vain, incredibly single-minded, which in a way you'd have to be if you were someone who was going to escape from that, that sort of industrial life and become this huge star, in his own eyes at least. And so he's documented his life throughout uh, the last 55 years, basically, of wrestling. He came to America in the 80s. At the age of 40, he came to America and, and basically started a career again and then had to sort of change his look and he obviously the gay thing or the gay act as I would call it um, went down very badly and very well at the same time so he loved doing that um, he's tiny though he's my height and as you know most um, wrestlers in America are huge guys so he had to sort of fight very hard to find a space for himself in, in the US but he did it very well as you can see I mean he was unmistakable what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show the first four minutes of a film I made about Adrian, just to give you an impression of him and his presence and his sort of physicality of being around him, because he's an incredible character. Um, if we can just have the first four minutes, thank you. He's a poet as well, as you'll see. I could be a tulip. I could be a man. The only way of knowing is to catch me if you can. You may suppose what you want to suppose, but I'm a sweet transvestite with a broken nose. I've got to be royalty, my blood must be blue. I'm king of the ring and queen of it too. Have you ever seen muscles on a rose? I'm just a sweet transvestite with a broken nose. I'll kiss you, I'll kick you, that's what I like the best. I'm as tough as Marciana and as sexy as Mae West. I'm as cute as Shirley Temple. 
And as fast as Bruce Lee, I could kill a man eventually. If you're a he, she, or it, you better answer my calls. I'm like King Kong with lipstick. I'm like Pharaoh with balls. I wear mink and sable when the cold wind blows. I'm just a sweet So the film's about 30 minutes long, and uh, that footage, the Super 8, actually was shot by Adrian on his holiday in Africa, and we sort of come back to that in the film, and it ends with him in Africa. And uh, yeah, he's an amazing person, and like I said, he still wrestles from time to time. Um, so when I show the film, I often show it with a huge mural which is different every time because I get different people around the world to do it. There's someone, it's on show in Spain soon and also it's on show in Japan at the moment. And uh, you get local artists, local uh, spray paint artists often, or people who do comics, to come up with their own interpretation of his life and have it around the screen. Because in a way his life is so big it can't really fit on a telly. It's bigger than that, and it's full of fantasy. I mean, it's absolutely, a f and the story itself is so epic that it has to have this fantastical element around it. 
Um, so that's, that's an image from London. So you know, from the left, it's a journey from the coalface to the paradise of, um, of Florida, where he lives by the sea. As was mentioned in, my, in the introduction, I, I, I did a show called Folk Archive with a, my colleague, Alan Kane, and we, uh, it was basically to try and look at British folk and vernacular art because we knew and we liked, neither of us went to art college, so we felt that arts colleges and artists don't have a monopoly on art making and creativity. And we knew that at, around Britain, especially especially out of London, there were great things that people had made that looked like contemporary art, or that contemporary art would copy almost, had the same thought process going through them. And so we just went around the country collecting things and taking photographs of things that we liked, that we felt were contemporary forms of folk art. And so this is a sign. Do you have Pizza Hut in America? You probably invented it, didn't you? <laughs> anyway. This is called Pizza, Pizza Rut, and it's in this town called Blackpool, which is probably like, um, it's a sea, very garish seaside town in Britain, massive seaside town, where you go to like get the temperature of, what's, of popular culture in the country, really, because that's where it's really at the, the sort of cutting edge of popular culture. But also, it's a very brash town. And uh, so here, here we have a you know classic Britishness sort of take in a way t making fun of yourself. I mean, you're making fun of your the, the, your terrible food by calling it pizza rut, and then having this huge model of a of a pizza which was going mouldy. I don't know if you can tell, but I don't know how they made it. But it was actually had like fur on it and stuff. It was absolutely disgusting. And so we were looking for that kind of inversions, really inversions of uh, order or or what you might expect from from traditional sort of uh, life in Britain, really. Uh, anarchy, in a sense. This is in the Notting Hill Carnival, where speaker stacks are made for, by sound systems. And they all look different, and they're all very beautiful and very formal, actually, a lot of them. And, um, of course, they look like sculptures. And, of course, the, what they're used for is, you know, it's a very social use. So we were, we were very intrigued by these configurations. This, again, is about... Uh, Turning, turning things on their head, effectively. This is uh, something called the World Gurning Championships in the north of England. And it's basically, you have to make yourself look as ugly as you can without using your hands to manipulate your face. You have to pull a face. And this is the guy that wins most years. Uh, <laughs> as you can probably tell. He is uh, actually a really good looking guy without, uh, you know, when he's normal. And so that transformation is very important. Uh, to, uh, if you make, if you go from being very good looking to being looking quite bizarre like that, then you, you probably will win. And so Tommy wins most years, um, and we love this uh, this event. And it's a it's a very very uh, noisy, chaotic evening in in this church hall, um, and. This might amuse some of you. We took some of the people that do this, unfortunately not Tommy, to Miami to the art fair, and we did a, we did a gurning competition in Miami, um, which we thought was quite appropriate and for a number of reasons. So again, it's, like, it's the anti-beauty contest. And so we're sort of tickled by that, by that sort of bawdiness of British culture, which, you know, Britain isn't just the Queen. It's lots of other things. It's things like this. And we felt that it was good that people saw this and understood it. Weirdly enough, the whole collection was then bought by the British Council, and they tour it around the world, so people get an idea of Britain from this kind of thing, <laughs> of British life, which is, in a way is probably more accurate than a lot of things could be, to be honest. And it's going to India, for example, at the end of the year, which we're very excited about, because I think in India they would absolutely get it. 
immediately this sort of thing. This is, a, this is another thing they will love in India. This is a, a mechanical elephant made with a, a lawnmower engine by the guys standing there. And uh, we saw this at a fair, and we couldn't believe it. You know, one of those uh, eureka moments, really, when you're looking for something that you don't know what it is, and then you find this elephant this guy's made. It gives children rides. You can just see some children on it. It's really noisy and smelly, and... Uh, kids are terrified on it. The parents, though, are like crying with happiness when they see their children on this elephant. And it has a reverse gear, so it goes forwards and backwards. And it's a lovely thing, and it's a fantastic thing. And I think for us, really, it was about meeting the people that made the objects and the artwork. It was something that we really got a kick out of, to be honest. So we're still in touch with a lot of these people. Um, this was a... This is a... One of the people we met when we did this was a trade union banner maker who makes a lot of uh, banners for a particular trade union, but also for any, you know, for demonstrations and causes and so on, death in custody, um, anti-war, uh, lots of things. And he, I collaborated with him to make some banners for a procession I did uh, through the streets of Manchester. And one, it, was a, it was a procession really about the public life of the town. So just normal stuff, but processing through a town, like people that busk, um, people that sell uh, the big issue, which is a magazine that homeless people sell, and also people that smoke in the streets. So we had a uh, David Hockney design that banner, and um, we had a lot of people smoking, walking down the street, something very normal, but very unusual on a procession, when usually with processions it's people in uniforms or something more formal. This was just very normal or spectacular. This is just a very average kind of stuff going on, um, which I was very happy about. Having said that, the, one of the people in the, one of the local politicians tried to uh, stop the whole procession because he was this sort of anti-smoking fundamentalist and he said it was promoting smoking. So behind, you can just see a black and white banner that had a, a warning that you have on cigarette packets that just said, smoking kills. And people smoking were walking down the street holding that. That was to appease him, but I don't think he realised he actually made it much better. His idea for us was actually really fantastic. Often when you, when you try and make work, even if you're in a position where you, within the art world at least, you think you're, about, you're doing as well as you can, things don't necessarily go to plan. This is one of the ideas I had, which actually I pitched here at the Hirshhorn and with the Smithsonian a few years ago. But there was problems, that, well I won't go into details with it, but I wanted um, for have a life drawing class in Washington, in the Washington area, with people of all different standards of, of uh, life drawing capabilities, but the model would have been Iggy Pop. So you'd have this very, very famous person with a very famous body being drawn by people, and then that, all those drawings were going to be on display in the National Portrait Gallery, because really it's a portrait of, a, of a, an individual, but also the body, his body represents so much about rock music, but also the things that it's been through, and, and performance art as well. But it fell, it, it, it went by the wayside, unfortunately. But I still got someone to do some sort of visualizations of how maybe it could have looked like. So there's a series of drawings of um, this life class that never happened. But it was, again, it was trying to be like a, almost like the Battle of Augury, like a, a look at something again, a, a forensic look at a body or an event or a person, and try and work out what their role is within uh, society and culture. 
of things that don't go to plan. This is the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. This, this didn't happen, by the way. This is a Photoshop thing that someone did for me. The fourth plinth is this empty plinth in Trafalgar Square, which I'm sure you know where that is. And it, it was, it was actually, it's empty because it was, in Georgian times, if you wanted a, a statue up, it was public subscription, so you, it had to be paid for. And it was a king who wasn't very popular, so no one wanted any, wanted to uh, pay for the sculpture, and it didn't go up, so it's empty. And contemporary art goes there now. And I was shortlisted to put something on the plinth, and I wanted it to be a, a, a vehicle that had been destroyed in Iraq. Not necessarily destroyed by the American army, but just destroyed. In, often in situations where no one's really clear why or who did it. But I didn't get it. I was in the last five. That was the model I made. But it didn't work out. And it really was just a way of showing people in Britain, this is in 2005, I think, what was going on over there. Just have a bit of evidence or, or a, an object from there in the centre of London, a big, ugly, horrible, blown-up thing in the centre of London. And it's pretty obvious why, in a way. Also in Britain, like in the US, you can't show dead bodies on TV very much. There are very strict rules in the UK about taste and decency with, with, after bomb attacks or in wars and so on. So often the car is the replacement for the human body. When you see a burnt out wreckage of a car, I think we're almost meant to think about it actually being a human being. So it didn't work out. But I was really, sometimes when some, something doesn't work out, actually it can get, it, you can go on and do something else. It's not the end of the world. So I, got, I did get a car from, from Iraq, um, a car that had been destroyed in a huge bomb attack in a market. And I toured it across the US with an American soldier and uh, an Iraqi citizen. And we did it almost five years ago to the day, and we started in, in D.C. This is not D.C., by the way. Well, our day in D.C. was just raining continually. This is uh, 29 Palms in California. It's a marine base. And that mural is the fall of Baghdad, which we thought was a... We tried not to do too many photo opportunities with the car, but we thought that was just, uh, that was just too good to be true in a way. So we toured across America. We did it in a very sort of bland way, in a way. We didn't sort of go in bells and whistles. We, we made a little flyer explaining what we were doing. The language we used was very straightforward. It was as neutral as we could be in a situation like that. So we'd just turn up in a town and park up. And that's in Phoenix. And just see what happened. This, people spoke to us. They wanted to talk about things. We, we were absolutely terrified, by the way. We were all terrified we were going to get beaten up across America from day one and just attacked physically, verbally, whatever. We had no problems whatsoever. And we went to Alabama, we went to Texas. We didn't shy away from potentially quite difficult places. Um, we, were, you know, we were inviting a reaction of some sort. But what we found was pe people on the whole were incredibly interested to see this object. A lot of people have been in the military, obviously, and they knew about these kinds of things. The guy with the beard is the Iraqi, Isam. He was prob you know, for a lot of people, he would have been the first Iraqi people would have met in, a, in, in the US, maybe, um, something, an Iraqi citizen. And he, he knew the Bible off by heart. He knew the Quran off by heart. He could speak many languages, incredibly cultured and well-read. So he could diffuse any situation that could have got out of hand, not that anything did really. 
the same with the soldier. I mean, they've been in much da more dangerous situations. So for them, this was quite a simple uh, process, and they, they had a, we, we had an incredible time um, doing this. But uh, strangely, the, the most criticism we got was from anti-war activists on the whole, because they were expecting a political artwork as opposed to an artwork. And, uh, and there's quite a big difference sometimes, or an activist-style artwork. So they became slightly annoyed by, by the way we were not giving really opinions out as much as just giving information as we saw it. Um, of course, it being America, most people saw it when it was on the road and on our tour. We, we, it was three and a half weeks and we stopped in about 15 towns. So thousands of people saw it on the road. We didn't cover it up when we traveled and we had those signs on the side saying where it was from. And so uh, that was interesting to observe that as well. We did document this, we did document it, but quite sloppily. I think there's a tendency for contemporary art to be over-documented and for cameras to be shoved in people's faces. Uh, too quickly, so we did it in a not in a particularly professional way, I have to say. But I didn't want that. I wanted it to have a sort of grassroots, basic feel to it as a project. It didn't need to be slick. In fact, if it was slick, I think it would have detracted. So we did film people if they wanted to be filmed, chatting about stuff. And what you found was, of course, often people went from being very uh, talking about the war to talking about themselves and their own experiences and so on. And it's, so it, it's quite fascinating, actually, to, in a way of sort of testing the temperature of the country at that time. If I could have that second piece of footage, this is from Memphis, and this is some, this is, well, this is one of the kind of amazing moments we had, well, I feel it was, um, with someone talking about the car and so on. It was done in a very noisy place, so just bear with it. There's a, quite a lot of wind, but um, you'll, um, hopefully you'll be able to hear what he says.
God was punishing us for not supporting George W. Bush. And I mean, that just, that did something. I mean, it just kind of turned me against any type of religion. And, you know, as far as this lead by partisan and forgive and forget, no. You can't forgive and forget. Like that car over there, they got blown all the pieces. You know, the people who live over there, how many of their loved ones died in that blast? Should they forgive and forget? You know, they didn't come over here and start a war on us. We came over there and started a war on them. Why shouldn't they hate us forever? If someone did that to, you know, to my neighborhood, I guarantee you, I'd hate them forever. But Americans have a sense of so yeah so that's three weeks three and a half weeks four weeks and I, I think without a doubt it's probably the best thing I've ever done not even as an artist as a human being in terms of just it was incredibly strangely very enjoyable and very satisfying thing to do but uh, that's yes I don't really know what to say after that bit of footage actually because uh, it was it really affected us sort of, sort of meeting people and sort of talking about th things like that and also you meet a lot of soldiers former soldiers a lot of whom were sort of semi-destitute the car now is in London it's uh, the Imperial War Museum in the centre of London is reopening in a few weeks or a few months and it's it's in their collection, I gave it to them, and it will be in the sort of, almost as you walk in, it'll be one of the first things you see. So it's a kind of incredible end to the, to the story about this car and its uh, literal journey, but also sort of metaphorical journey, that now it's in this, this museum about warfare and Britain's involvement in wars around the world. So from, the sort of, uh, from that to this, it's quite a leap in a way, no pun intended. Um, I mean, I'm, as you can see, I'm interested in history, I'm interested in recent history, but also I'm interested in heritage, this word that we use a lot in Britain, and also kind of ancient history in Britain, which of course no one knows, this is, uh, by the way, this is uh, inflat an inflatable version of Stonehenge that I made. Um, no one knows what Stonehenge was for, but of course we have ideas, and I like that. I like the fact that you can project onto it, literally, in a way, your own beliefs about the world. And um, also it's a bit like British identity, uh, English identity. No one really knows what Englishness is or what Britishness is, and it's good, it's good that it, it changes and everyone has their own version of it, and it, there's no definitive version, because that would be boring. So I made this object, and really it's, it's I thought I, when I had the idea to do it, I, I just thought this is the stupidest, dumbest artwork ever made in the history of mankind. And I was very happy to do that. I wanted to make something that was very enjoyable, very funny to go on, uh, something that um, maybe made children interested in archaeology. But also, there are moments with it. I mean, I took, I, had a lot of, I took a lot of photographs of gymnasts on it, with people almost levitating on it, which I, I liked that. So it still had this sort of mystical element to it, I felt. But also, it's just another way of interacting with our history and not taking our history too seriously. And so there's a sort of Monty Python element to it as well, which I liked. The fact that British people can look at their history in, in funny ways. And history is funny. I mean, there are when you think about it and the way people try and interpret it and, and own it. So um, 
I wanted to kind of open it up massively to everybody in a way. Because if you go to Stonehenge, you can't touch it, you can't walk through it even. You're separated from it because it's, um, it would get damaged by the millions of people that visit it every year. So this was a, a, an opportunity to see it. It's a scale version as well, just to see how big it is. It's massive, you know, there's like 20 foot tall almost, those, those stones. So it's, it's sort of awe-inspiring and very funny at the same time. And that's what it's something I was very keen on doing. And we come to the sort of last section of the show. This is Venice, which we've been was talking about a little bit beforehand. When you get asked to do Venice, well, I think when you get asked, you have to really put all the stops out and just really do not an extreme show as such, but a show that is, uh, doesn't really compromise. But also a show, I was doing, I was making a show that was for Britain. For, for the, my audience was not an art, international art audience, it was really for a British uh, newspaper reading, TV watching audience. Because art in Britain, contemporary art, has such a profile that you know anything you do like this at this level will be covered by the press. So I knew it would be on the news that night, national news. I knew it would be all over the internet. So I thought, well, I'm going to make a show that, um, that is for people who, who watch the news rather than people who read art forum necessarily. So um, I called it English Magic. And it's really, it's not, you know, it's the British Pavilion, but Eng English is a very tricky term often and the Scottish have their own pavilion the Welsh do but the English don't it's Great Britain so I thought I'd make a show about Englishness not that I know what it is either to be honest so I had this big painting at the end as you can see you can see the thing about the pavilion is it's a beautiful pavilion at the end it's the highest point in Venice um, of land it's up a hill, it's about, about 30 foot high. That's, that's how high it is. And um, you walk up this lining of trees, and almost as soon as you enter, the, uh, enter the, the gardens, you can see the British Pavilion, but also the back wall of the pavilion. And I realized that if I put a very strong image on the back wall, people would see it before they even got into the pavilion. So there's a way of enticing people in, and there's a bit of a reveal with it as well. It's, a, it's an image of a hen harrier, which is a... It's actually small in that image, it's a, it, which is a bird, very, very rare bird in Britain, in England. There may be none left even because uh, they get hunted. And they get hunted by people who own grouse estates, you know, the, the bird grouse. Unfortunately for the hen harrier, it likes eating grouse chicks. There's another one of it, slightly closer. Um, so. In 2007, two of these birds, and I, when I say rare, they're, they're, like I said, there's probably none left in England anymore. In 2007, two were observed being shot out of the sky in Norfolk, which is a part of Britain, um, on the Sandringham Estate, which is uh, where the Queen lives. And it's, it's now, no, well, it was known at the time, the only two people hunting that day with guns were Prince Harry and a friend of his. So it's very, very likely and even though the guy from the British Council is here, I can say this with quite a lot of confidence, it's very, very likely that it, these two birds were shot by, um, if not Prince Harry, then his friend. Um, if you or I did that, you, you could go to prison or you'd be fined massively, but you, you'd probably go to prison if you were caught. Unfortunately, the carcasses of the birds weren't found, but uh, it became a, a small story at the time in Britain. And I thought, well, I'm going to make a sort of mythological painting about this. I'm going to have a giant bird come back 
this huge bird, a very beautiful bird, and instead of ha having a sort of um, a grouse chick or, or a mouse in its wing, uh, in its claws, it'll have a Range Rover. Because uh, for a variety of reasons, it would have been weird to have Prince Harry, that would have just been like, stupid to have Prince Harry in it. But a Range Rover for me as a car represents a lot of things I don't like about Britain. And uh, I apologize to any Range Rover drivers here. I mean, in, in, in America, a Range Rover is like a small car, isn't it? Or a medium-sized car. <laughs> In Britain, that's a big, that's a very, very big car. And, and I cycle around London a lot, and Range Rovers are the cars you fear because the people that drive them on the whole shouldn't really be driving. And they're big cars. It's a kind of a bully's car. So it's nature getting its own back on, uh, on man, really, this giant creature. And I, I saw this pavilion as a sort of mythological pavilion. And there are other kind of mythological, uh, futuristic, uh, ancient history mixed up together. On the back wall of that, the, uh, that room was uh, a mural of a, of, a, of a town being destroyed by fire. And it's actually a town called St. Helier in Jersey, which is probably where a lot of the money from Ukraine and Crimea and Russia goes through. It's a, it's a sort of tax haven. It's a British, uh, it's a British uh, town, basically, but it's on an island. It's a protectorate, I think it's called. It has this sort of weird status. But a lot of money goes through it, and other islands around the UK. And so I had this idea that in five years' time, the, the taxpayers of Britain will go to this town and have a demonstration about their sort of their tax-avoiding sort of policies and their financial institutions. And by accident, I haste to say it's by accident they will burn the town down, and that's the town on fire. And the banner on the left is one of the logos of the organisation. The the uh, for the demonstration, and it's actually a, it's a financial instrument that's been turned into a mask. When I say financial instrument, I mean it's a diagram of how you can avoid paying tax. Um, but it, I've made it, in, instead of words, I've made blocks of colour. So it looks like this mask, and there's another one on the other side. Around the pavilion you could handle objects, you could handle very old objects, and you could make artworks, you could make prints. So I wanted to have this sort of interactive element in the pavilion. So I used uh, Neolithic flints, arrowheads, and mixed them up with contemporary objects. These are three copper discs, which are the, the master discs for the records you heard that the steel band was playing in the film, which in themselves look like ancient artifacts, like shields or something that have been dug up somewhere, these ancient bronze shields. So the whole, this whole room had arrowheads articulating the architecture and the other artworks in it. If you want to know, I got them on eBay. And uh, some, are, some might even be real, <laughs> but probably a lot of them are fake. In the room off of it, there's another large painting. This is a huge painting. This is about 20 foot high. And um, did anyone go to Venice in 2011? Yeah. Did you remember Roman Abramovich's yacht? He's got, remember Abramovich has got three yachts, I think. This is his smallest one, it's 377 feet long. And he parked it at the Giardini and had a fence put around it. It, was, it became a real talking point. But in a way, this is the art world that's made, we've made this art world for him, basically. You know, it's, our, it's all our fault. If you don't like it, then you're part, you know, inevitably be part of this system. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if William Morris, the arts and crafts philosopher and artist, came back from the dead as a giant 
and destroyed the yacht and threw it into the lagoon. And so that's what I, that's what that, that is a depiction of. So it's again, it's the revenge of, it's a revenge of something, but it's really the revenge of ideas and art over money and materialism. And it, so it's sort of fantasy, revenge fantasies, basically, I was enacting on, on all the walls. In every room in the pavilion, there was a destroyed vehicle, either depicted or an actual destroyed vehicle for some. Um, what you see on the bottom right, those, those framed works, these are... I mean, it's quite timely, actually, this. These are the tokens that were given to workers in nationalised industries, in sort of steel-making, forestry, and so on. They were given these tokens and share certificates when the Soviet Union uh, was no more. And it was a way of ensuring that the workers would keep some control over the factories they'd worked in. Of course, this didn't happen. The, the companies were sold off quite quickly, or their tokens were bought en masse by people, and then they were basically bribed to give them the tokens, and the factories were taken over by criminals, effectively, of whom Roman Abramovich was, was working with you know, proper criminals. And so I had these very innocent-looking objects, but they're actually quite beautiful, some of them. And also objects, uh, these, some, some of these are also um, Ponzi schemes and uh, telemarketing schemes, which all grew up very quickly after the end of the Soviet Union, where people who were basically naive about money and the market and capitalism were fleeced. And around them are stories. So the text is stories about what was going on, about uh, aluminium factories and people being thrown into smelters and st stuff like this. The next room was uh, a room, very traditional looking room, and it is a traditional looking room in a way, um, of drawings. They're drawings made by soldiers who find themselves in prison now, many of whom served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I wanted to have a, a picture gallery really, a, a portrait gallery of people involved in the build up to the war and the war itself. So I'll just show you those. There's a drawing of Tony Blair. We'll just, let's just dwell on that. So it was a very traditional thing. So I approached a charity that works in prisons and said, look, I want to do this, this story about the war in Iraq um, through portraiture, but also through drawings by soldiers of their experiences. So we had about 10 portraits. We framed them in a very specific way. We framed them basically in the way the British Museum framed prints and drawings. We mounted them very nicely. We made them look very clean because in a way the chaos is within the work. We don't have to, you know, outside art, it doesn't have to be displayed in a crazy way. I know, I know that's a sort of, that does happen, but I don't particularly like that. So it was, or art that's made by people who are self-trained or whatever you want to call it. So we presented it in a very calm way and um, in the room. So half the pictures were of people involved in the war. I chose those, those uh, characters and I just I spent a lot of time in prisons sitting with, with those groups of former soldiers just doing the portraits and then some of them would do drawings of things that they'd seen or done or had heard about. So for example this is a, a drawing by a prisoner he, and um, it's the night before they're deployed in Afghanistan 
he went to the barracks in Chelsea in London and there were a group of men sitting around with a big Union Jack behind him which is the whole thing the whole story is just so incredible and they're all smoking crack because it was their last chance to have, have like a drugs party basically and that's that's his image that's what he from memory that's what he drew um, so that's another one for a sniper did a drawing of what he saw when he was in Basra it's, and the, the, the room is called you, you Have the Watches, We Have the Time, which apparently is a Taliban saying, Paul might know more about it, which in a way for me just sum, sums it all up, sums up the whole problem about being there. Um, in between this room and this room, there was a little tea place where you could have a cup of tea, which is a way, it really is a device to keep people in my pavilion as opposed to going to anyone else's pavilion. But also as a way for people to read the little brochure you were given when you walked in, which explained what was going on in each room. So there was some help. I didn't want loads of text in the rooms, but I, want, I wanted people to know what was happening, more or less. And then the film, what you've just seen, that's just in the room next door, was showing. And you might notice the unorthodox seating. That is a Range Rover that we used. That's the Range Rover in the film, which we turned into a bench for people to sit on. So for me, turning something intrinsically useless into something useful, that's why, that's why I looked at it. It's funny, on the night it was shown on British TV, I got a very abusive message from the head of the Range Rover Appreciation Society. <laughs> Which the next morning he wrote to me saying, I'm sorry, I think someone hacked my account and sent you a, a message last night. Uh, obviously he was drunk when he was watching it and, made it, and sent me this, this kind of abusive message. Um, anyway. But the, the music in the film uh, is by a steel band uh, in London. I've always loved steel band music, and I've always loved cover versions. Um, and the three pieces of music are a David Bowie song called The Man Who Sold the World, which is at the end. The middle is a song called Voodoo Ray, which is an acid house song, a very famous one. And the first piece of music is Vaughan Williams, a song called Romanza, which is a very mystical, ethereal piece of music. So I wanted quite odd the choice was kind of slightly threatening, slightly dark, but uplifting. If, that's, if you can have dark, uplifting music, that's what I wanted. And um, we recorded at Abbey Road, because I wanted to... I just thought, you know, you're not going to have this chance ever again in your life. You might as well do exactly what you want to do. You want to make a record at Abbey Road where the Beatles made all their, song, all their records. Why not? So we had a day there, and we made a record in that space. So we, in a way, we made a pilgrimage to this sort of ancient place called Abbey Road where this religion of rock music started and where it all began basically for Britain, in, in, at least post-war Britain, where we kind of redefined ourselves as a country. So I kind of totally believe in that sort of mystical element of, of music and rock music. So it was very important to go to the source basically and make this pilgrimage. Um, and so the music ties the film together. You could hear the music throughout the pavilion, which is very important. Usually when you're in an exhibition and you hear sound and music from video, it's annoying if you can't see it. But I wanted it to just filter through um, and be there, present throughout. Um, this was another room. This is the last room. This is a map of the uh, David Bowie Ziggy Stardust tour of Britain in 1972, 1973. This photograph isn't actually taken in Venice, it's somewhere else. And I had this idea to do, an, uh, do a piece of work around this tour. Because, of course, you know, this was a, a major moment in British 
popular culture and pop music culture, where this person started this tour in a very small way and it ended up being this massive phenomenon probably not seen previously since Beatlemania in terms of the way he caught the imagination of young people and um, this is a photograph from the final concert in Hammersmith Odeon and so it's this idea of this man travelling around the country blowing minds at every place he went so I was very interested in that tour and the effect it had on young people but of course that tour started in 1972, the day after the first date, the British Army killed 14 people in a, in a protest in Northern Ireland. So for the length of the tour, there's a bombing campaign going on in, in Britain, but also there were, there were major um, industrial relations problems, there, was, there were um, power, power cuts and so on. So it's a very, very uh, tense moment in Britain. and, and uh, quite chaotic in a lot of ways. And I remember as a child, I was very young, but I remember the power cuts and I remember the IRA uh, having a mainland bombing campaign. So what I did was I got photographs from the tour of, of mainly of fans really from specific days of the tour. And then I found out what was going on news stories on those days um, in Britain. And I found photographs taken on the same day as the tour was happening. So I juxtapose images like this with images like that. So that's, that's Belfast, for example. So it was just, uh, I was quite worried by this. I thought this could be a bit weird, having an image of a ter terrorism or this sort of thing next to images of rock fans or rock concerts. You know, I don't want to make it, look, make it look all chic and dangerous. I just wanted to see what would happen when you put all these images together in a room. Actually, it was fine because you realize that a lot of the images from Northern Ireland are about youth, really. It's like young people doing things that will change their lives forever or will affect them forever. Like going to a gig might change your life, but being part of this sort of thing would change your life, or being a, hit by a soldier or a policeman would, would be a very formative experience. So it's about youth and identity and uh, choices you make as a young person. But also about these two worlds happening at the same time, like the hard news, the hard politics of, of this, as opposed to the, the, the popular culture of this. Um, so luckily it, it, it looked fine. It was fine, I, I say. Um, I just remembered, this is, this is the last image of the talk, by the way. It just occurred to me the other day when I was watching this that when it says we're all working together with David Bowie, I suspect that might be a reference to the amount of strikes that were going on in the country at the time and some sort of comment on that. That even though there might be all this um, turmoil, industrial turmoil, we're still going to have this concert and you know, music will survive despite what else is going on around you. So I'm going to end the talk on that note. I think there might be questions. But thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, I'll, I'll repeat it, your question, Fred. The question was, uh, 
Did everyone hear that question? Or should I repeat it? It's about how, if you work with people, well, for example, I'll give you some examples. Sometimes it's like that, that you work with people and they don't get the credit necessarily, but that's how a film director would work. Um, so you have to, I look at it maybe in those terms. But for, for example, that folk art exhibition, everyone that we work with was credited. Everyone I work with gets credited. Um, so I feel I credit people as much as possible. Some, some are anonymous, obviously, that, um, that you work with in, in some respects. But I'd like to think that the, the work is much more important than the person, i.e. myself, that makes it. For what happens in terms of how it's uh, marketed or looked at in the press is the pro I see is the problem of the media that want to go on about the artist and his life and so on, rather than about the content of the work. So you just make the work and, and do what you can as best as possible, but how it ends up being written about or portrayed is something you have very little control over. You know, and if you think about it, most artists work with loads of people. They have assistants and they work with them all the time. So it's not unusual. Yeah. question was about the Irish famine, if I have interest in it. Um, to be honest, I don't know that much about it. I'll be honest with you. I probably would do if I knew more about it. I'd be probably more interested in it. Whether I'd make a piece of work about it, I, I, I don't know. I think that would be quite a tricky thing to do. Um, but you reenacted the minor Yeah. I get asked to reenact a lot of things after that. <laughs> and, I, uh, and I haven't reenacted anything. And to America, and to and to the UK as well. You know, it, yeah, um, I wouldn't. Uh, at the moment, it's not on a sort of priority list, to be honest. But I, I understand why it could be, or why someone would want to make it. Question: Guy with glasses. Oh, there's two guys with glasses. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, there's three guys with glasses. Oh, there's the one. There's actually someone behind you. Uh, I'd go with you, then you two. If that's right. Okay. Yeah, well, I think um, if you grew up in Britain in the 70s, as I did, I was born in 66, so I was sort of conscious in the 70s, if you know what I mean, um, then you, you know, do, music was the dominant, I felt, was the dominant culture, uh, or, or, or culture expression was in music. And so you would watch, everyone would watch the same program every week, or Top of the Pops, if every young person would watch it. And it was a form of uh, probably brainwashing, effectively. And I was totally brainwashed by it. And I, I think that, when you watched that, especially as a six-year-old, and you see David Bowie, or you see all these glam rock bands, you come to understand that music actually is about how things look as well as how things sound. And so, um, it's something that stuck with me, really, and I was always interested in. I can't play instruments, I have no musical talent, really, but I love it. And so, the closest you can get to it as an artist is working with musicians and around music. So, I hope that, that answers the question, or partially. Can I go with the person on the right? My, my 
right with the blue shirt. I can just, and then I'll go with you on the left. Yeah. Sure, uh, question about the Yeah. The first part has to do with the, the concept of having people be able to draw as part of the exhibit and kind of democratization of the exhibit. Yeah. And I wonder if your time at the factory or all of the events and such was kind of an influence on that. And what the pick is, because that seems to come through and it's in your work. And then the second part has to do with your choice of the pop specifically. Start with Iggy Pop. Um, the first, the second question. At your part, I think that for me, it was about his mortality and the fact that his body is probably, you know, there has to be a moment where it is starting to sort of decay. And I thought that'd be a very interesting thing to document, which is probably why he wasn't massively keen to do it. Uh, <laughs> we did speak to. He was spoken to. He was spoken to about it, and he was sort of into it, and then he wasn't. And then it was a moment when the Smithsonian didn't really have many directors, people were leaving and, it, and so I needed the, the full kind of support of the organization to give it a legitimacy, not just some crazy other idea. It ha actually had to be about America and about Ameri collecting Americana and about the country itself. Um, so, yes, I think E-Pop was the most, it, it's the natural person really because um, because he uses his body so much more than any other rock artist, I would say. And the first question was about the Warhol thing. No, I think the thing about the factory just taught me that, I mean, I, I was only there for like 10 days or two weeks just hanging around there, was that you could basically do whatever you wanted because he was doing whatever he wanted, it seemed. And you could, uh, you could uh, just make your own world for yourself, which is what he did brilliantly. Um, but I do like, I like, the whole point about the Iggy Pop thing was it was going to be done by people who didn't know that Iggy Pop was going to be the subject. We were going to just pick people, we're going to sort of do some sort of system where we, whereby we would select people from this area who go to life drawing classes, like some like 82-year-old woman, and then some young person, or someone who's very proficient, someone who was, you know, just have a real mix, basically, of like 15 people from 15 different backgrounds, one hoped, and just draw this man for a day intensively, and then all the work would be given to the American uh, people, as it were. That uh, didn't work. I mean, it's the kind of idea when you think, if I do this and it goes well, then I can stop making art because that's it. I've done it. I, mean, I really felt that was it was just almost too good to be true, which of course it was. So uh, <laughs> it could still happen, but I just don't know. I just don't know if I can be bothered to try and do it again. So there's a question there. Yeah. I was just curious. Sorry, so the, uh, how important the video that's here is to... Uh, sorry, I, I, can you just... Well, I think part of 
You are. But it can... It, sure. Right. Okay. Well, no, yeah, you're right. You're, you're seeing a, a, a film that has sort of been taken from out of a, a, a larger installation. But having said that, the day that Venice opened, we released it, as it were, online as a film that you could just watch. You couldn't download it, but you could just watch it because I felt that it could. It, it was strong enough in itself to exist by itself. Um, also, no, not everyone get to Venice, especially in this country. That's a big investment. So I felt that it's a it's a show that's being paid for by the British taxpayer because the British Council fund it entirely, and uh, there was never any quibble about the budget. Everything was paid for in full. So I just felt, well, I might as well let the British taxpayer themselves see this thing that they've basically paid for. But I, I, I think that work, the film works by itself. With the Battle of Orgreave, the film isn't the, the artwork, it's just a sort of documentation of the artwork. Um, because I need, there's no way you're going to do something that costs half a million pounds and someone's not going to film it. And it was actually being paid for by a TV company, so that their film from it was, was the way we got it made. Can I go there, you, and then you, and then I think I might have to be here. Is that correct? Can someone shout at me? Yes. Okay. So, two more. That's a very good question. Basically, the question was like, did I set out to make art that couldn't be sold and make money from? I mean, basically, I set out to entertain myself and keep myself happy and with the world and with myself. And also, when I was starting out, it was the moment of what you, that horrible term, Brit art. And all those people that were selling work and showing it with Josh Saatchi and making objects and paintings. And me and my friends, we just thought it was so uh, reactionary in a way and kind of quite dull. And it wasn't that daring because it, everything just existed in these galleries and quite elitistic and so on. So I, I knew I couldn't make things. I'm not a very practical person. I didn't go to art college. I didn't study art at school even. I was sent out of the art class. So I, didn't, I don't have those talents anyway. And I was never really interested in making money in the way that some of those people were. And I just wanted to do things that were in, of interest to me and maybe other people. Um, so in a way, it is turning your back on something. And I was turning my back on something, definitely. You know, at the height of sort of Brit art in 2001, I made a film about trade unions uh, when everyone was hanging out with Elton John. And so it was, uh, it was definitely a, a, a statement uh, that I was trying to make in a way. So I didn't want to kind of go along with that. But I do sell work, and I do sell work at fairs. Well, I try, I try to sell work at fairs. I mean, it, it takes quite a lot of... Uh, it's quite a lot now not to be able to sell work at first because it seems like everything sells. But anyway, I, I, I do sometimes not sell work at first as well. But I have sold work. And you know what? Everything is for sale. You could buy that mural from me if you wanted to. I mean, everything has its price, but it's just more difficult to sell it, obviously, because 
you, what you're going to do with that mural if you want to change the room or do something. And so it's more tricky. It's more tricky to buy things from me because they're not. They can't be sold on that easily. Basically. This is the last question. Well, this is a very good question. This is about how do you get a car from a war zone. Basically, I talked to the British Army, who didn't want to know, of course. Uh, they're very unhelpful, the British Army. And then um, <laughs> I talked to some charities. Then I talked to an art fir a firm that goes and does installs art, and they said, we'll get you a car from there. We'll go and get you one. But the price was so high. And then someone heard I was trying to get a car from Baghdad, and he said, look, it took me two. I, it took me a year to get a car out of Baghdad, and he he'd used it in this sort of anti-war. This guy called Robert uh, Kuja. He'd used it in an anti-war exhibition and performance piece, and he'd heard I was trying to get a car. And he said, "Look, just take this car from me." So I didn't actually go over there. I didn't do any of the negotiation. I got it a very easy way, which I'm very glad about actually, because I was. My friends who are journalists who had been over there just said, unless you're really, really very well prepared, you shouldn't go over there because it was so dangerous. This is about 2007, 8, when we were thinking about doing it. So he'd done it. It'd taken him a year, and he'd had to do it through the Red Cross. And there's a big compound, like a car pound, where all the destroyed vehicles were. And he got two vehicles from that particular explosion. But it was very difficult, and you know, a lot of money has to be paid to people to do it, and so on. Anyway, I think that is that it. I'm being nodded at. Thank you very much.